This episode of All Things History with Amhiza was made in association with the University of Manitoba History Students Association. The University of Manitoba campuses are located on original lands of Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Metis Nation. We respect the treaties that were made on these territories. We acknowledge the harms and mistakes of the past, and we dedicate ourselves to move forward in partnership with Indigenous communities in a spirit of reconciliation and collaboration. Welcome to All Things History with Amhiza. I am your host, Olivia McDonald Major. Today we are joined with Associate Professor of History and the sole professor of archival studies in the University of Manitoba and University of Winnipeg Joint Masters Program in History, Professor Greg Bach to discuss archival decolonization and digital archives in Canada. Welcome, Professor Bach, and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'm delighted to be here, and I'm so impressed that Amhiza has put together this podcast series. Uh, and I also want to thank you for the original lands acknowledgement, and to note that I'm also on Treaty 1 lands in the homeland of the Métis Nation. Uh, archivists have a particular obligation to remember the treaties, which are, after all, archival documents and to acknowledge the harms and mistakes of the past which are documented in archives. Archives are always relevant to the present, but perhaps never more so than today. Um, and I should also note that I'm speaking to you today from my home office as Manitoba suffers through the fourth wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. So don't be surprised if we are interrupted by meows from my cats or questions from my children, because that's all part of the chaos of working from home during COVID. So. With that, let's get this underway. Thank you for that. History students are familiar with primary sources, yet few undergraduate students have experience with archival studies or have been to an archive. Can you briefly explain what an archive is and how archival studies differs from the study of history? Sure, thank you. That's that's a couple of really major questions there and I'll do my best to answer them, but don't hesitate to, to ask any follow-up questions if you think I'm, I'm missing something in, in my response because the, like I said, these are huge questions. So one way to think about archival studies is to think of it as applied history. So just as engineers make practical application of physics or doctors make practical application of anatomy, archivists make practical application of history. Archival Studies is a program of professional education that prepares history students and others to work as a professional archivist. Within the Archival Studies stream of the Joint Masters program, students learn how to apply their history studies to the challenges of acquiring, describing, preserving, and promoting the use of archival records. And of course, Archival Studies, again, like engineering or medicine, has developed its own body of theory and its own literature independent of history. Students in archival studies are introduced to the theory, practice, and literature of archival studies. But you also asked another important question. What is an archive? There are so many kinds of archives that this could be the focus of an entire podcast, but I'll try to be a bit more brief. <laughs> uh, government archives, university archives, community archives, church archives, corporate archives. There are archives found throughout society and across Canada, 
Winnipeg has a particularly rich set of archives operating within it, including the Hudson's Bay Company archives, which is recognized by UNESCO as part of the memory of the world. The archives of Manitoba, the city of Winnipeg archives, but also community archives such as the Mennonite Heritage Center archives and the Franco-Manitoban archives located at the Centre de Patrimoine. And of course, the archives of Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission into Canada's system of residential schools located at the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation on the Fort Garry campus of the University of Manitoba. But what is an archive? People often contrast archives with libraries, noting that while libraries deal with published information, archives deal with unpublished records. This is true, and it's one way of thinking about it, but you could also say that libraries usually hold non-unique items, since many libraries provide access to the same book or article, while every archival record is unique and irreplaceable. Or you could define archives based on the role they play in society, noting that archives hold records that are used in a range of research, from academic histories to family histories to medical studies. Institutional and government archives, additionally, are tasked with holding evidence of the actions and policies of the institutions they support. So government archives hold evidence of the work of government. Church archives hold evidence of the actions of the churches and so on. This kind of evidence is crucial, not only to write histories of these institutions, but to hold them accountable, as we've seen in the work of Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and as you see in auditor reports, um, other national inquiries and so on that happen across the country. Thank you for that. I think that that's a really wonderful explanation. In a guest lecture that Professor Emeritus Tom Nesmith gave to one of my seminars last year, he discussed how archives are not organic, but a constructed resource shaped by the methodology and management techniques undertaken by the archivists, the archives history, and the biases of the archivists. When a historian or archivist is seeking to scrutinize a collection of materials in an archive, how important is it to understand the collection's positionality and history within the archive as a whole? Well, it's super important. It's, it's all important. And the way that you've characterized this is exactly right. Many books and articles refer to archives using metaphors drawn from the natural world. Archives grow like the skeleton inside an animal, or they accumulate like sediment in a river. Historical scholarship in particular often uses metaphors of resource extraction when writing about archival work, talking about mining, which calls to mind data mining too, fishing or farming. This gives new meaning to the idea of working in the field, I suppose. Um, but such metaphors obscure the work that archivists do in selecting a tiny minority of records for inclusion in the archive, arranging those records into particular and sometimes peculiar configurations and describing them in archival databases, which are then used by historians and others when they seek records to support their research. So seen from an archivist's perspective, the mining that scholars do in the archive is akin to someone taking a gold ingot from a geological museum and saying that they discovered it. And this is a problem because when the work of archivists is not acknowledged, neither are their biases, as you point out in your question. Any work of valuation or selection is inherently subjective. And at its heart, archival work is entirely about how records are selected and valued. This determines not only what goes into the archive, 
but also how those records are arranged and described and which ones are recommended to researchers in the reading room. Professor Nesmith also discussed situations in which archivists destroy documents as part of the archival process. As a student of history, I was initially surprised by this until he explained it more fully. Could you explain why this is done? Um, it's such an interesting aspect of the work of archivists. I often say to new groups of archival studies students that preserving records is only one of an archivist's superpowers. Another is destroying records. I like the kind of like Joker and Batman, good and evil kind of dichotomy that this, this creates, but it's, you know, both of these are necessary powers and record destruction is essential for many reasons. And I'll tell you, I'll, I'll talk today about two of them. The first is that archival institutions are not as lavishly funded as their mandates suggest that they should be. The Library and Archives of Canada Act states that our national archives is intended to preserve the documentary heritage of Canada as a source of enduring knowledge accessible to all and as the continuing memory of the government of Canada. They collect records of national significance from citizens and organizations from sea to sea to sea and are obligated to maintain the records of the government of Canada from before confederation to the present. At the same time, Library and Archives Canada has endured decades of funding cuts and erosion of funding, acquiring, preserving and making available records of all types and all media paper, photographic, audiovisual, digital, and so on, requires a specialized workforce and special facilities. As a result, Library and Archives Canada preserves less than 5% of the records created by the Canadian government, and a good deal less than that of society as a whole. Of course, the scale of record production in government and society is such that these tiny percentages translate into hundreds of kilometers of records, millions of photographic images, maps, architectural plans and artworks, and hundreds of thousands of hours of audio and video recordings. All scholars who rely on archives should take an interest in this underfunding of our national archives, and I would add other archives too, including your local archives. And especially when they realize that key aspects of our national experience are missing or are misrepresented, as is the case, for example, of indigenous peoples, and people who identify as LGBTQ2SIA+. But the second and perhaps more significant reason that archives authorize the destruction of records is that doing so is part of the necessary work of making the remaining records accessible. Scholars often note the arduous work of sifting through boxes and boxes of records to find their rare nuggets of archival gold. But imagine the work if the other 95% of the records were included. Moreover, once you start to understand the nature of records creation, the idea of destroying large quantities of records starts to make more sense. For example, archivists will always want to keep records of the policy decisions and core operations of any government agency. But records around office supplies, standard bureaucratic operations, facility maintenance, lunch meetings, all of that has, has much less value. And you know they, those records are never promoted over the you know, keeping of the records of decision, policy files, and records of core operations. Uh, you know, to say that these other records have little value is not to say the same, to say that they have no value. Um, and of course, we can always come up with research topics that you know, can make really profitable use of even records that, that could be significant. But in the zero sum game, 
of inadequately funded archival institutions, these kinds of decisions must be made. And archivists are guided by core aspects of archival theory. Uh, so the, these decisions aren't made capriciously. Uh, they're made through research and by uh, having a, a firm grounding in the principles of uh, archival studies. In the middle of the last century, Canada's National Archivist referred to this work as the fine art of destruction. That's a phrase that I really like because it, it nicely captures the challenge of uh, making these kinds of decisions. Is the underfunding of archives in Canada a specifically Canadian occurrence or more of a global phenomenon? It definitely changes from country to country. Does any archive feel that it's you know, as funded as strongly as it should be? I'm not sure that that's the case. But certainly if you look at some European countries, uh, for instance, the Nordic countries, you can see the way that they think about archives is completely different. Um, it tends to be more integrated into the machinery of government. Um, and so the idea of archiving is implicit, right? As you know, government systems are created and, and uh, um, before any of these kinds of decisions are being made. In Canada, archives have, have not always been seen in this, uh, as essential in the same way. And so you, know, you, you really started to see in the 1990s uh, a series of uh, funding cuts that came along with program review under the, the liberal government of Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin. And unfortunately, you know, the, there has never been a recovery of that money. Um, so there's a kind of historic trajectory where, you know, at best, uh, the National Archives will retain its level of funding, but then there's always governments that will come along and further erode it or make further cuts within government to, to the keeping of records. And, you know, this is <laughs> maybe getting into a bit more detail than is necessary, but once you start to really understand the nature of what it means to keep records, you start to see the, the connections between what happens in the individual departments and agencies of government um, so that those records can be created and kept in a way that will allow them to be transferred to the archives. And what we've seen over the last 30 years in Canada has been funding cuts that have affected all aspects of record keeping. Um, I think there's perhaps a uh, uh, overconfidence in the ability of digital storage to solve all kinds of problems. Um, but of course, digital archiving is not any less problematic than, than trying to keep non-digital records. It's problematic in different ways or challenging in different ways. So I think the situation in Canada is actually um, uniquely Canadian in the sense that every situation depends upon its context, as of course, historians and archivists both delight to point out. <laughs> Many of the archival institutions in Canada were constructed during Canada's colonial period, institutionalizing colonial and Eurocentric methodologies and marginalizing indigenous and non-European narratives. What are modern archivists doing to decolonize these institutions? Wow, this is, this is such an important question. And it's so incredibly timely right now. And I would say, you know, the number one thing uh, that everyone should be interested in doing is getting more Indigenous people working in archives. I, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is um, that, that, you know, this is 
there's so many dimensions to this challenge, but one of them is around representation. And certainly having more indigenous staff in archives and more staff from other racialized and marginalized populations uh, from the Canadian population. Uh, this is so important um, as a way of introducing you know, other perspectives, other ways of knowing and ways of being um, as uh, you know, the, the archivists do this incredible work of creating and managing the, the heritage of the nation. But in addition, it's not just a question of you know, recruitment. Uh, there's a lot of other work that's also going on um, to, to try to decolonize uh, the, the, the archives that exist. So for instance, you know, acknowledging that uh, archiving is part of a kind of constellation of memory institutions within Western culture, particularly sort of European derived Western culture. Um, thinking about, you know, those, those other institutions such as libraries, museums, monuments, street and building names, parks, and so on. But thinking about the particular ways that our society chooses to remember, and then recognizing that that is culturally specific and historically contingent. And then recognizing that there are many, many other traditions of social memory that exist and recognizing that indigenous traditions of social memory are equally legitimate and effective. And in many cases predate the arrival of Europeans and the creation of, of European derived institutions of memory like archives. So a little bit of humility <laughs> and, and a kind of, and, and I, I would point out that, you know, the courts are leading archives in this particular way. So, you know, going back over the last 50 years, there's been a series of, of decisions in the Canadian courts that have validated indigenous forms of social memory uh, and have placed uh, indigenous memory keepers on par with the archivists, uh, professors, uh, and other sort of scholars who have been called on in the past to, to um, represent uh, the, the, the archivally derived histories. Um, so, you know, that sort of acknowledging these other indigenous memory traditions is important, but it's also to recognize the ways, the many ways that colonial archives have contributed to the misrepresentation of indigenous peoples and have served as part of the infrastructure of settler colonialism in Canada. So when we look at the records about indigenous peoples that are found in most settler archives, what we're seeing are records created by people outside of the indigenous cultures that they represent. These records are rarely the kinds of records that indigenous peoples would have created about themselves or that they would want to have publicly available through archival institutions. So we need to also think about how do we move forward recognizing this archival legacy is core not only to heritage of Canada as a whole, but also to the identity and the representation of indigenous peoples and thinking about the ways that these archives uh, can be harmful in and of themselves uh, to indigenous peoples and communities. And equally thinking about the ways that these specific harms within settler archives often are foundational to claims of settler land ownership and the assertion of settler rights. So there's a lot to unpack there in terms of understanding the ongoing effects of colonialism 
within archives, the way that colonialism has operated and continues to operate through the archives, the archives as a structure of colonialism. Um, this, is, this is incredibly challenging and it's for archivists to, to deal with right now, but it's so, so important. And many archives right now are making these connections and are doing their best to try to reduce the ongoing effects of colonialism on indigenous users of archives. So this includes, for instance, trying to make physical spaces more welcoming to indigenous researchers, recognizing the past history, for instance, of surveillance on indigenous peoples, and also recognizing the, the way that archives are configured today as, um, you know, so as to create opportunities for surveillance, whether that's, you know, if you go to a government archive, you usually have to, to go to a commissionaire uh, to check into the building. And then once you finally get to the reading room, you'll be surveilled by archival staff. So thinking about those kinds of issues in light of uh, colonial histories is incredibly important. But equally, it's important to think about the, the ways that uh, the language used to describe the records may itself be racist or outdated. And within archives, we value the original language that was used uh, by the people who created records. But as we move forward with archival decolonization, we have to recognize the potential for trauma and harm that comes from continuing to use this language, particularly in finding aids, archival databases, and so on. And so, you know, we need to think about how that language use can impact on, for instance, Indigenous users of the archives. And, and of course, this can also be extended to think about other marginalized populations and other terms that were once common but are now considered to be offensive when you're talking about them. So, Thinking about the language in the archival finding aid is really important, but overarching all, however, is the need to recognize that decolonizing an archive is not like decolonizing other institutions. So for instance, despite their shocking racism, colonial records have to be preserved as evidence of the actions of the Canadian state and of settler Canadians. So while archivists must strive to improve the way that they describe records, and to try to avoid causing further harms in the way that they're describing and, and making those records available. As a, it's a fundamental core principle of archives that the records themselves must not be changed. So now this is going to sort of loop back to where I started from with, with acknowledging the existence of indigenous forms of social memory. Colonial records that are in our settler archival institutions must be supplemented with other records. There has to be counterweights to this, the racist and colonialist histories that are documented and created through these kinds of records. So a good example of how this principle would work is found at the University of Manitoba at the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. And this archive, for instance, includes the entire set of colonial records around the Canadian residential school system, which is over 5 million records and then supplements that with thousands of hours of audio and video testimony from indigenous survivors of the residential schools. So that the impression that you're left with from using that archive is not the impression which has been the, the case in, in settler Canada for far too long, which is that these, these schools were you know, well-intended and, and all this other uh, misrepresentation that indigenous scholars and activists have rightly pushed back on and schooled us all 
uh, about the true nature of what was going on in the residential schools. If you go to the website of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, it's those survivor testimonies that they talk about as the, the, the gold at the center of their collection and that you will be immediately uh, see as you start to move through the, the collections. So in instances where the archives are not complete for various reasons, such as document destruction, mismanagement, or lack of inclusion, how do archivists fill in this missing history? Or is that left to oral historians? You spoke about Indigenous oral histories, filling in gaps or correcting colonial narratives in the archives of the NCTR. Is this done by archivists or oral historians? Um, well, I mean, the, the testimonies at the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation were mostly created by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission itself. Um, and the archive continues to take statements from survivors of the residential school system. So in this case, um, oral historians, I don't think they had any part in it. I, like I, I'm just trying to think of the, the people that I know that have worked either at the TRC or the NCTR. And I think you know, most of them uh, come, are coming from other directions uh, into this work. And within uh, archival studies, there's a strong recognition of the need for oral histories that, it, that official records are rarely sufficient um, to tell the entire story, for instance, of the impact that an institution can have on society at large. So there's a, an American archival theorist named Helen Samuels, who was particularly influential in her writings in the 80s and 90s, um, where she addressed the need to have archivists actively go out and solicit um, oral histories uh, in order to fill in gaps in collections. However, uh, when you're talking specifically about gaps in the colonial history of Canada, and when you're talking specifically about settler archival institutions, this can be very tricky. And there has been, you know, in the last 20 years or so, a very strong movement within archival studies towards community archives um, and the importance of keeping histories within communities rather than having them collected by centralized archival institutions. Um, so for instance, the, the idea that we need to acknowledge the gaps within our colonial history, one way to address those gaps would be to say, okay, if Indigenous peoples are willing to share their histories, then perhaps those histories could be recorded and, and brought into the um, archive. However, the act of maintaining an oral tradition, this is separate from the idea of oral histories, but the act of maintaining an oral tradition over centuries and millennia, that is something that is part of indigenous uh, ontologies, uh, in indigenous ways of knowing and ways of being. And, you know, recording someone reciting one aspect of that oral tradition is not the oral tradition itself. That's not a record of the oral tradition. That's the, that's the one representation of that tradition that's tailored to a specific situation, probably a specific audience, um, and is just one tiny little aspect of what that memory keeper holds on behalf of the, the community that they represent. So how do you go about um, you know, preserving that history? Well, I think you start by acknowledging that that history is already being preserved within that oral tradition. And the next question that you ask is, not 
how do we get a copy of it for our archive? But how can archives and other institutions of social memory in the sort of Western constellation of institutions that we talked about, how can we support and strengthen the continuation of the Indigenous oral traditions? How do we point people towards those memory keepers, um, elders and knowledge keepers and so on, when you know the, it's a relevant use of that history that the Indigenous nation might support? Those are the kinds of questions that we have to ask in this particular instance. Now, Indigenous groups and are different from uh, many other marginalized groups, perhaps in that perspective, uh, particularly in this you know, preservation of Indigenous memory systems that have ex existed for so long and that continue to exist, even though Settler Canada did its best to stamp out these kinds of systems of, of community transmission of knowledge through the residential school system and through other mechanisms of settler colonialism. But these systems have survived. And the, the, it's kind of like the, the work that's going on today around um, the, the maintenance and supporting of indigenous language transmission. We need to think, think similarly about indigenous memory systems and how, how is it possible for archives, for instance, to support the work that these, these memory workers who, who you know, the, these, these elders and memory keepers, these are the, the experts on, on this. So the question is, how, do, how can we support you, not how do we record what you have to say? That's different from other communities where it might be appropriate to try to capture personal memories before they're lost, either through age or by people passing away or whatever. In in indigenous societies where you have these, you know, socially distributed systems of social memory preservation, it's a, it's a different kind of situation. Over the last 20 years, a significant trend within the academy has been the increased inclusion of indigenous sources, narratives and perspectives of indigenous scholars concerning the history of indigenous peoples of Canada. Within this environment, what role can non-Indigenous archivists play in facilitating the decolonization of archives and records in Canada without further dispossessing Indigenous archivists? Such a great question. Um, and it's, it's really important to recognize right off the bat that the vast majority of archivists working in Canada today are white settlers. While we greatly value and encourage the participation of Indigenous archivists, archivists of color, and archivists from other marginalized groups, we must proceed with archival decolonization as best we can. And, and moreover, many residential school survivors have noted that colonialism is not an Indigenous issue, but a settler issue. So it's important that settlers do not sit back and wait for Indigenous people to address settler colonialism. We all have a role to play in reconciliation, and we all have to, a role to play in, in decolonization, including archival decolonization. So this kind of starting point is taken very seriously by all students, Indigenous students and settler students in the Archival Studies program at the University of Manitoba. If you look at our website, at the list of theses that students have written, uh, you can see that many of them address aspects of archival decolonization. And if you read these theses, you will note that many of them include a statement of positionality where the, the author of the thesis uh, we'll talk about their background and explain why they chose a particular topic. 
And it's really important that, you know, not all settler students choose to work on decolonization or reconciliation. Equally, not all Indigenous students feel obligated to take on topics addressing Indigenous archives. That's okay. That's the way it should be. People should be able to, to choose the topic that feels right to them. But together, Indigenous archivists and settler archivists with, you know, particularly settler archivists with a deep understanding of archival decolonization, together, settler archivists and Indigenous archivists are transforming the way that archives function in Canada today. And that's exactly how it should be. Many colonial records portray Indigenous and non-European communities in a derogatory, racist, or stereotypical manner. Similarly, these records often contain sexist or misogynistic characterizations of women and LGBTQ2SI communities. During the decolonization pro process, how do archivists identify and illuminate these problematic betrayals so that reuse of these documents do not perpetuate these issues? Well, I mean, this is, uh, this is a, a really important issue. And we've touched on it a little bit already in our discussion. Um, some archives have started to use uh, content warnings on particularly sensitive records. But as we've already talked about a bit, um, the last thing that archives want to do is to suppress problematic records. People come to archives to learn about the past, and this must include positive and negative aspects about the past. So part of archival decolonization recognizes that colonial archives have systematically disempowered Indigenous and other minoritized people um, within archives. The records that are kept about these populations, as, as I've already said, were not created by them and have been managed often without input from the same minoritized populations. So perhaps the most important thing is not to go forward without, you know, having these communities participate in the ongoing management of these records. And this is why, you know, community archives approaches and participatory approaches within archives are so important at this particular moment. It would be completely understandable, you know, if you can bring in uh, populations of people to sort of understand these records and to, to see the way that their communities are being represented. It'd be completely understandable if some communities decide that they did not want records that misrepresent their culture or their ancestors to be publicly available. But, you know, to, to say that these records can only be used if there are certain other supports available or certain other processes that have to be gone through before the records are made accessible. And that can be both to control the way that the records are being used so that their community is not, you know, misrepresented on into the future. But it can also be to, you know, provide support to members of their own community and to allow people to know, particularly members of their community or related communities, that, you know, these records may cause trauma or may trigger other traumas that have already been experienced in that person's life it's really important to recognize the power that records can have, um, both positive and negative. And often these positive and negative aspects are interwoven into each other. So for instance, by understanding the history of racism and colonialism that has allowed for the creation of the Canadian state, understanding that allows successful indigenous claims at court 
which allow for the, um, you know, the, the reinstating of indigenous lands, um, the resumption of indigenous rights, and so on. So it's, it's challenging, but I think fundamentally it comes down to questions of participation. And, the, and that participation is, you know, first and foremost on the archive. Uh, the archive, often there are records in archives that, uh, you know, an indigenous community might have no idea are in the archive at all. And there's, there's been some work done through the archival studies uh, program on records of that type. And I, I would particularly recommend Carmen Miedema's archival studies thesis, which examines one particular uh, set of these kinds of records that, you know, the, again, were created without the knowledge of the community um, and include, uh, you know, important aspects of the culture and spirituality of that community. To shift the discussion somewhat, Canadian archival institutions, such as the Library and Archive of Canada, contain kilometers of non-digital materials that need very specific atmospheric conditions so that they do not degrade. Why aren't all these non-digital documents digitized so that archivists don't have to worry about degradation? Huh. That's a little bit of a change of pace here. Just like give, give my brain a minute <laughs> to, shift, to shift out of archival decolonization and shift into digital archives. Although honestly, I would say that the two are not um, that far separated um, because the, the way that we use digital systems within archives, I mean, um, I always say to students coming into archival studies that uh, they have uh, no choice. They're they're going to become a digital archivist because the first of all, you know, the, the records that have been created in the last fifty years, um, where you know they probably started as as digital records, even if they're available in in paper copy. Um, but they uh, they even in the case of paper records, they are all going to be managed according you know with digital systems. That is the nature of archiving today. It's all digitally mediated. And digitization is just one more example of this kind of digital mediation of archives that we've just come to accept. And that honestly, I don't think that, I, I don't think scholars take seriously enough the nature of the transformation that happens when an archival record is digitized. And I think we have come to accept the, the, the advantages of digitization and in fact, start to count on them. Um, in to provide access to records remotely, for instance, and so on. Whereas, you know, in the past, historians would have been very concerned to actually get to the original records um, and have a look at those records themselves. So, you know, why aren't all these non-digital documents uh, digitized? Um, well, first of all, I would say that, you know, I, I would go point back to what we were talking about earlier around the underfunding of archival institutions in Canada. So digitizing um, archival records is not like digitizing books, for instance, with Google Books or any of these sort of mass digitization uh, projects. Typically, you can't drop a file of archival records into the hopper and they'll just sort of run through and, and you know, you'll, be, you'll be done because it's all printed on uniform paper um, and it's uh, typed up nicely and legible uh, typing and so on. Anyone who's used uh, you know, archives for any amount of time realizes that uh, it can be very difficult um, to, to 
cope with the, uh, you know, the, the different kinds of handwriting, um, the, the different kinds of records, the, the, the ways that records are sometimes damaged, torn, uh, sometimes they're very faint, and so on. So it can be very difficult to actually digitize all of this. But equally, overlooks aspects of archives that you know, are, are so different from other kinds of information. So for instance, you know, it's one thing to say that uh, archives are unpublished, but you could also say that in many cases, archives are unpublishable. And what I mean by that is that there are specific legal reasons why archives can't be published. So to take just one example of copyright, um, you can say that, you know, if you write a letter to me or an email, and I receive that, I now own that physical record, but I don't own the intellectual property that you created and that under Canadian law, you retain the ownership of that intellectual property. So I actually can't publish that letter without your permission because I can't make a copy of the letter without your permission. So you think about how much correspondence there is within archival records, and you can start to understand some of the, the intellectual property challenges, for instance, around managing these, these kinds of records. But equally, there's provisions in the Privacy Act. There's provisions in the Access to Information Act that prevent uh, the, the publication or the copying of many of, you know, the, the, the making available of this information on the open internet, for instance. So there's real legal impediments uh, to allowing this information to, to circulate um, through digital copies. Equally, you know, we've been talking so much about archival decolonization, so I think that's a little bit on my mind, but you can think about the ways that records enact, for instance, racial violence. So if you have records that are degrading to a particular group um, or that are sort of an, a, a record like uh, an example that's often used are lynching photos. These are an enactment. The, the, the taking of the photo um, is often an enactment of racialized violence. And circulating those records on the open internet, you know, whether it's a, a record of colonialism that misrepresents a colonized people, or it's a, a record that sort of um, enacts racialized violence, Continuing to circulate those, those records, there might not be a legal impediment to do it, but certainly there are ethical questions that have to be raised uh, around this. So I, I think this idea of digitizing everything is, seems attractive and you know, particularly because it's not like only archives experienced funding erosion and funding cuts over the last 30 years. Um, of course, you know, scholars are also dealing with the, the difficulty of traveling to archives, especially as, you know, increasingly in history and other disciplines, um, the, the focus is on, you know, transnational um, topics that, that recognize the, the ways that groups interact over huge expanse of space and, and huge periods of time, which requires visiting archives in many different locations and so on, or at least drawing from those archives. So there's real challenges here around how do we move forward uh, with these kinds of records, but certainly the, the idea of digitizing it all and making it all openly available on the internet um, is, is not possible uh, for so many reasons. Most of the materials created over the last 40 years 
started as born digital materials that were created first in a digital form with digital technology and software systems constantly upgrading and the rapid pace of digital obsolescence. How do archivists archive materials when the technology it was born on is no longer in use or in working order? Uh, that, that's a huge challenge. <laughs> I will tell you right off the right off the bat. Um, and you know, part of the challenge is actually uh, also ties back into intellectual property rights too. Digital records are software dependent. And what is software? Software is just another form of uh, artifact creation or record creation. And intellectual property rights remain inherent in the software. So you have these dependencies, not only on obsolete digital technologies, but also on obsolete software architectures. And so, you know, this, this whole question of obsolescence becomes very complicated. And archives have taken a, a, a few different, you know, uh, approaches to this. I suppose I should, I should add as well that it's kind of like the, um, I mentioned earlier, this idea of, you know, something discovered in the archive is a trope that really kind of bugs archivists. Another one that really bugs digital archivists is this sort of assumption in our society that digital information is somehow easy to preserve. Um, and you don't really have to organize it because we have all these wonderful algorithms and search techniques and everything else that will allow us to discover exactly the piece of information that we want. But actually, you know, finding historic information on Google even, and you know, Google is perhaps the best realized of these kinds of digital technologies, search technologies, but finding historic information on Google is actually really challenging. It's hard to locate the information that you want over time. But equally, you know, the, the idea of preserving stuff easily in digital it simply doesn't exist. And, and actually it's something I should have mentioned in my answer about digitized records as well. One of the challenges of digitizing anything is that you actually double your burden of preservation because you're not going to get rid of the, the non-digital original. And then you've created a digital record that now needs to be managed. You know, as soon as you digitize a record, another record is born and you have another born digital record. And so now you've got two records that you need to manage. And that born digital record, like the records that you're talking about in, in your current question, are, is going to be dependent on technologies that are current right now, but are swiftly going to fade into obsolescence. So what can an archive do? Well, there's essentially three strategies um, that, that archives have been following over the last 50 years, say. The most prevalent one is around migrating content into current systems. So you can imagine, you know, if you used a word processor like WordStar in the 1980s. Um, you know, it's a word processor that's not in use anymore today. Um, but you can imagine, a, you know, creating a document where you would migrate the content out of the WordStar document and into a Microsoft Word document, for instance, or into some kind of, you know, RTF format that's open access, something like that. So that's one of the strategies that's used. And the advantage of that, obviously, is that you can access that information now. You don't have to go back to WordStar. You can just access it in the, the, the current computing environment. But then archivists ask the question, well, but wait a minute. <laughs> what if part of the experience of understanding that WordStar document is understanding how WordStar itself operated? What if understanding the operation of the, um, the software is part of the, what you need to understand 
the record itself. And so there's a, there's a really great example uh, of this in the archival literature, which is around the records created by Salman Rushdie in the years when he was under fatwa. Uh, so Salman Rushdie, a very significant uh, uh, author of, uh, you know, internationally recognized for his contributions in literature. You could say that, you know, this understanding, not just what he wrote, but understanding the context in which he wrote it is incredibly important. So the archive at Emory University, which is where the Salman Rushdie records are held, um, has decided that it's necessary to actually create emulations of all of the software, including the operating systems and so on that Rushdie used so that scholars can arrive and can experience what it would have been like for Salman Rushdie to open up his laptop and fire it up um, and try to write. Uh, while he was, you know, being moved from country to country to, to try to keep him alive uh, during those years. So that's, that's an example of another strategy that's used, which is around emulation. So em what is emulation? Emulation is when you, you create within your current computing environment, you kind of, you know, create a, a little room within that. And within that little room that's sealed off from your computing environment, you create another computing environment. And that, that other computing environment is able to run the obsolete software. And so you, you, the, this, this sub-computing environment is, is called the emulated environment, a system of emulators available so that you could render content in the original systems it was in. And this answers the question of, well, what if there's something significant about seeing it in this original system? You don't want to just access the data or the, you know, the, the the writing or whatever the form the record takes, but you actually want to see what it would have looked like when it was rendered um, on one of those original computing systems. So emulation can perhaps answer some of that. But I, I said there were three strategies and the third strategy is one that's, you know, perhaps the least likely to be encountered, but is actually incredibly important in the operating of archives, which is to keep archival copies of the original technology. So anytime you have, um, you know, digital archives or AV archives, uh, you know, before, you will find these collections of obsolete computer systems or AV systems or, or whatever, because, you know, it might not really work as an access strategy, but certainly for the archive itself, in order to render those records, uh, they may well need to be able to run them on the original computing systems or the original tape recorder or whatever. So there's, those are the three main ways that uh, archivists are confronting this, this really difficult challenge of obsolescence. Yes, when I think of this, that question, I think of trying to understand things like the mathematics that sent astronauts to the moon during the Apollo missions uh, that was created off of IBM computers that filled large rooms or computers that in the eighties that needed sort of large shelf-like disks in order to program a software. And so I guess emulation would work for some of those, but you would have to keep some of that technology in order to fully understand the software and the outputs that were coming from that. Absolutely. I mean, this is, the, it's a great example. And, you know, people often like to say that, you know, the, the computers that uh, ran the early moon missions had less power than a, any smartphone has today. 
Um, and on the one hand, this is true, uh, but on the other hand, it misrepresents what was actually happening in those computers because those computers didn't have, you know, a smartphone or my desktop computer or any computer that we use today. A huge amount of that processing power is actually spent on the operating system and this sort of, you know, very user-friendly uh, user experience that we have when we use a computer today. But those mathematicians that were, for instance, calculating for the, uh, the moon missions were doing a lot of that work themselves. So they were an important part of the interface into the computer um, in order to understand how that particular computer worked. So, you know, how do we go about archiving that kind of experience? I mean, that's, that's basically impossible. That's, that's maybe the job of the historians. Uh, we need, you know, we, we need historians of technology who are not just interested in the sort of, you know, the iPad begat, the iPhone begat, the, you know, whatever, <laughs> the, the iWatch or the Google Glasses or whatever, um, but who are interested in the, this kind of social and cultural effects of technology and the ways that technology is not something that, you know, falls from outside of a culture, but is actually part of that culture and the way that our culture is expressed through technology. So for instance, um, one of the courses I'm teaching this fall is actually a history of interactive computing from the 40s to the 90s. And it's a particular focus on uh, the, the importance of games, computer games as something that actually drove the development of a lot of uh, computing technologies, but also were kind of the killer app that brought so many people into computing um, in general. So I think all of this comes back to actually uh, the importance of historians and the importance of cultural histories of technology and not just technological histories of technology. I think that would be a really interesting course. Uh, I remember seeing that the um, 30th anniversary of Super Nintendo was recently uh, just passed. And as someone who played Super Nintendo as a child, it brought back a lot of memories of my childhood. And so, <laughs> you know, I think that that's, that would be something uh, interesting to chronicle and and to look at uh it's super interesting and and you know you go to a game like uh space war which was one of the first of the uh of the truly computer games that was visually represented and so on it was run on pdp1 um which were a, a kind of like small mainframe computer um these the, and it was created by grad students in marginal time um uh you know in, in order to basically have a computing challenge and just just for the fun of it um, and it's really interesting to look at a game like that and, and understand its place within this development of the kind of interactive computing environment that we're using all the time uh, today. So, you know, it's, and it's, it's part of that Nintendo entertainment system that, that you remember fondly. Um, and honestly, if you were to go to the Internet Archive today, um, you could probably play a lot of those games that you used to play on the NES. Um, you could probably play them right now. Uh, through the, and, and the Internet Archive is using in-browser emulators in order to allow that. So within your browser, um, it will launch automatically an emulator that will allow you to play these kinds of uh, historic games. And this, again, this work is super important because things like the NES or the Nintendo 64, of which I have a working version in my house right now, <laughs> um, but you know these are these are milestone um, advancements in not just the development of computing, 
but in the development of our culture. So it's, I, I think this stuff is incredibly important. I think that it's too often trivialized because people say, well, it's just, you know, playing games. That doesn't really matter. With the mass volume of digital records continuing to be produced, how do archivists decide which born digital records should be archived and which should not? Yeah, well, that's that's really important. And, and you know, this is uh, this brings us back to the, the questions around selection and so on. And if, you know, I use the, the figure of less than 5% uh, for the amount of records of, from the government of Canada that the National Archives is able to keep. When you move to digital records, those percentages plummet. So because there's so much, uh, you know, copying of records, uh, small adjustments of records and so on that happens in the, in the course of the way that we use records, just look at your own hard drive um, on your own computer and you can see this. So it becomes increasingly important to figure out, again, in the underfunded archival world, how do we identify, you know, we, we recognize that we can't keep everything that has archival value. We simply don't have the funding for that. But how do we identify the best records that we can keep? And that is something that's guided by, uh, you know, um, long traditions of archival theory around how that kind of those decisions are made. Um, it's also guided by innovative use of technologies. So artificial intelligence, I actually think is a, it's a terrible term for what is really a form of uh, human-centered or interactive computing. Um, but this term artificial intelligence has been uh, sort of used to group together a whole bunch of tools around, uh, you know, text mining, data mining, um, the use of algorithms to sort through based on different criteria and so on. Um, and really, you know, when, whenever you're dealing with algorithmic operations, fundamentally behind the algorithm is the human who programmed the algorithm. And so algorithms are just another tool that we as humans use to sort of uh, manage this, this technological environment that we live within. So the traditional work of archival appraisal, which is the, the term that archivists use to talk about this selection process, the traditional work of archival appraisal continues on into the digital era. And the question becomes, how do we create, for instance, algorithms that can do the kind of work that is done on the internet by Google um, in order to identify high value information resources? How do we create the algorithms that will find the resources that have a high archival value, recognizing that this is a different challenge than Google? So for Google, they can leverage things like the popularity of a source. They leverage things like uh, the, the uh, authority, um, the, uh, the, the role of the, uh, the, the creator of that record uh, is part of the algorithm that, that Google will access. Archivists need different algorithms uh, because there's gonna be different metrics around, for instance, all of these questions that we had in our discussion around archival decolonization, around representation, participation, and so on. These are the kinds of things that we need to factor into, you know, algorithmic approaches within digital archives in terms of selecting these kinds of resources. But like historians, you know, it's, it's very common for historians of the digital era, right? Historians of the last 50 years um, to say, there, we, we are in an era when the kind of comprehensive research that we as historians might like to be able to practice can't be practiced because the volumes of records are simply too great. 
Um, and so you can look at things like the, uh, you know, the, the email trove that comes with any records of a prime minister, for instance, in Canada. There is no way that any one person can go through all that material. Um, and that's just one, one record form. There's so many other kinds of records to look at as well. Within you know, digital history, there's also a need to rely on algorithmic approaches, which are sometimes called things like distant reading, um, that sort of map out relationships among records or relationships among record creators to try to identify relevant subsets. And those same kind of tools that will be used by digital historians that must be used by digital historians are also this, the kind of tools that digital archivists need. So we need to work together on those kinds of applications. What happens uh, if an archive is donated a collection of non-digital materials, but you know that those materials were born digital? Yeah, well, <laughs> that happens all the time. I mean, you go to any, uh, uh, honestly, part of the story of the last 30 years that uh, the underfunding of archives has been um, that for many Canadian archives, they've been slow uh, to get on top of digital archiving. And so almost every archival institution in Canada has printed emails in their collections. And sometimes that will be simply because that was the way that the person who received those emails actually managed them. Um, but in other cases, like for, for many years, the official policy within the government of Canada was called print to file. <laughs> and so this is, I, I used to be a government archivist at Library and Archives Canada. And uh, this policy of print to file um, was in place for a very long time uh, within the Canadian government. So, you know, the, the, I guess the question that you have, you, you have a series of questions that you need to ask about that content. So first of all, is it likely that you could actually get a digital copy, a digital original, I should say, not a digital copy, but a digital original of those records? you wouldn't be able to see that record in relationship to the rest of the records that the, the, the paper copy arrived uh, with. So what you're really faced with is a question of how valuable are these records? It's the same question that we're always asking ourselves when we're accessioning anything into an archive. And so then it becomes a question of deciding, you know, are these records sufficiently valuable that we simply need to keep them, even though we can recognize that in archival terms, this paper copy may be a second choice to the digital original? Um, or um, do we say that, well, you know what, these records are maybe not essential to keep um, in this form. Honestly, there's, there's also a current within archival theory um, where particularly probably up into the 90s, uh, where the, the creation of records is recognized in the digital systems, these records were often created and then the final version would be the print copy. Um, and so for instance, if you think about something like a contract that you have to sign with a pen, um, that print copy of the digital original is actually the copy that has legal weight, right? So there's, there's not really a choice in that case. But today, increasingly, this is all being done digitally with digital signatures and, and so on, so. My, my father was a policy analyst for the Manitoba provincial government for over 35 years. And he had to deal with printing digital uh, materials for many, many years and, and editing on them um, and dealing with superiors who would only deal in paper copies. 
and filing paper copies. So even when the policy within the government changed to everything in digital form, some of the people who are superior to him were dealing with sort of legacy records and would not transition over to to born digital records. So I can understand the, the sort of legacy issues and archival issues that the provincial government would then run into with dealing with those sorts of issues. Uh, the, the legacy human issues as well. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. There's, there's many, many stories of users who, you know, like this doesn't happen anymore, thank goodness. But, you know, it used to be not uncommon for, for people to print their emails and then, you know, figure out how they want to reply and then type a reply and send it. So they're really just using the email as a system of transmission which is insane, but, you know, is, is the way that a lot of people did it. And again, you know, going back to that, the, those early cultures of computing, and again, this is why it's so important to understand technologies always being part of a culture, right? Not, not being something that just operates uh, for all time or outside of culture or something like that. But you really need to look at how the, the, the culture actually used the technologies um, while they were current, so. And, and understanding things like print to file. I mean, so as an archivist, you have to understand the record creating and keeping environment of the, the, either the creator or the host institution or, or whatever it is that had those records before they came to the archives. And if that official policy was print to file, that's a strong argument in favor of the validity of those uh, paper copies of digital originals. Yes, I've, I've also heard stories of people who were doing dictation to secretaries that were then transitioned into emails, which is an even more complex yep. uh, archival situation. So. Well, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's another, there's another huge piece of this to be understood, which is around the, the disappearance of actual typing secretaries, right? I mean, uh, as, as computers moved on to desktops, um, slowly everyone became their own computer user so that you don't see the same kind of dictation systems and so on that you used to have, but certainly what you're describing, you know what? I think it still happens today, honestly. <laughs> I think in some organizations where you have executive assistants uh, providing support on email management to, uh, to you know, CEOs or presidents or whatever, I'm sure it still happens today. It's all about the culture. That's why the historians are so important. Finally, Misinformation and fake news have become dominant trends within our digital world. During the process of archiving born digital data, do archivists test the validity of the records they intend to archive before they are entered into a system? And is there any value in archiving instances of misinformation or fake news? I think this discussion that we had around colonial archives uh, helps to give us part of an answer to this, which is that, you know, the idea that the truth is out there somewhere, perhaps in an archive, is very hard to sustain at this particular moment. We need to be very critical when we think about, you know, what it is that archives are actually keeping. So, yes, there are records that are, you know, uh, factually important uh, to keep. And you can think about, for instance, you know, data that's transmitted from, um, any kind of like weather system or something like that, you could say, well, okay, this, this is content that we probably want to keep because it's factually accurate. 
but usually what archives are keeping are the records of an organization as evidence about the operation of that organization. And that evidence, it's important to keep the stuff that was wrong as well as the stuff that was right, because you want people to understand the entire picture of how the organization was operating. So, you know, would we destroy records because we know that they're not true? No, we would not. We would want to contextualize those records. We would want to make sure that the user will understand the problems with those records. But that's not a, that's not a good reason for not acquiring records in the first place. To come back to the question of the nature of digital archiving and the, the massive creations of data that are happening right now, I think one of the reasons I dislike the term artificial intelligence is that it suggests that there's some way that computers could actually evaluate um, the, the, the data that we are receiving. And in fact, what we see is how incredibly important it is to actually understand the context of data creation, keeping, and use. So for instance, you know, there's been a lot of controversy around the use of facial recognition software by police agencies. And a lot of that controversy comes back to the fact that these systems are systematically geared towards white faces. And they result in uh, poor outcomes for racialized peoples uh, within these kinds of systems. And so we need to understand the nature of the data set that's being created, the nature of the software that's going through that data set, and honestly, the nature of the entire computing stack that supports the operation, right? The hardware through the operating system, the firmware, everything. And the way that, that computing, our computing culture today is overwhelmingly English oriented. It's overwhelmingly developed in white cultural settings. And there are huge problems. Computing is not a culturally neutral technology. And so the, what's the antidote to this? Context. It's what we as historians and as archivists specialize in. And this is, we need to bring those kind of critical faculties to when we encounter data, when we make use of algorithms. So every time you run a search, for instance, on an archival database, you're using an algorithm and you need to think about what it means to use that algorithm. And particularly when you get into systems that use optical character recognition, for instance. So we need to think about where's this data set coming from? Who produced it? What was it intended to do? How is it being used now? Is, that, is, the, is our current use of it, uh, does it align with the way that the data was created? And if not, what consequences of that are there? Of course, there's many reasons why you might wanna have a different application of the same data, but you need to think about what was not uh, captured in that data in the first place. So it's more, it's, I, honestly, it's more a question of context uh, than it is a question of whether the data is truth, truthful or accurate or, or whatever. Although obviously, you know, there's, there's also some data sets that you might just say, well, this is garbage data. Why would we want to archive this? Why would we want to use our limited resources to preserve this particular data set? To finish off, do you have any last comments? Oh, our time has flown by. <laughs> I guess my, my comment is, is to say thank you so much for, uh, for inviting me to this discussion. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, there's always so much that's going on in the archival world that I just want to sort of trumpet to, 
to the non-archivists out there. And um, I think the one thing I'm, I'm super excited about right now is that uh, there's actually going to be a postdoctoral scholar in archival studies at the University of Manitoba uh, for the next couple of years. Her name is Jamila Gadar, um, and her work to date has taken on some of the most important aspects of colonial archives in Canada. And I would particularly recommend that, that you know, um, when her talks come up and so on, that, that people uh, pay attention and, and come out uh, because she's got really important things to say. Uh, her most recent publication is titled Total Archives for Land, Law, and Sovereignty in Settler Canada. And it just came out recently in the journal Archival Science. And it explores the history of archiving in Canada, um, including the role that archives have played as part of the structures of Canadian colonialism. So I would just say that, you know, there's, there's lots going on. Thank you for your interest. And I hope that uh, the people who listen to this podcast uh, continue their own engagement with archives, in, including a critical engagement. Well, thank you for that. And please keep us uh, up to date with any talks that are coming up and we will keep our members uh, up to date as much as we can. Ooh, that's, thank you. That's so, a great idea. I will definitely do that. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for taking the time to discuss archival decolonization and digital archives with me today, Professor Bach. Thank you so much for your interest, Olivia, and, and thanks to Amhiza for this uh, podcast series. Take care.